Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. I want to start tonight by asking you guys some questions, give you a pop quiz. I promise to make these really easy for you. But the first question is, how much power and authority does God have? Right, we've asked you this one before, so I'm glad you got that right. God has all power and all authority. Next question is, how much of that power and authority has he given to us? All of it. The Bible says he's given us all power and all authority. Next question, if he has all power and authority and he gives us all of that power and authority, how much power and authority does that leave for the devil? None. Uh, I know we've talked about that before, but I want to I wanna dwell on this, this thought. The Lord just kept saying to me, uh, talk about our place at the table, our place at the table, our rightful place at the table. And I need you to know that our enemy, Satan, is afraid of us. And a lot of people think that's pride, like, oh, you got to be careful. You shouldn't get prideful. That's not pride. I'm stating a fact that the enemy is actually afraid of us because he knows not that God is on our side, but he knows that we are on God's side. Yeah? And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like the fact that we have been given all power and authority. Satan actually craves all power and authority. Satan actually craves any measure. He would take 1% of the power and authority, but he gets none of it. He can only win battles when power and authority is given to him. If he has no power and authority, that means he can only win battles if power and authority is given to him. Do you think that God gives Satan power or authority? Where do you think he gets that power and authority? And there's this interesting spiritual law. It's not an absolute. There are definitely times when God does not follow this rule. But generally speaking, God and Satan many times will operate based on man's level of cooperation. In other words, God can do whatever he wants. But over and over and over scripturally, he only moved as much as man cooperated with him. If he said, you'll obey me this much, then you can have this much of me but no more. Satan's actually the same way. He needs cooperation from us so he can get power and authority. Satan can pick a fight with us, but he doesn't have the power or the authority to win that fight. That means if he wants to try to defeat us, he can't use power or authority because he has none. He can't do it through power. He can't do it through authority. He has to use his weapons of lies and deceit. That's all he's got. And Satan tends to focus a lot of his energy on getting us to believe in his abilities and his power. And then he he tries to spend all this energy into getting us not to believe in our power and authority that's been given to us. Um, And this isn't a human power statement. This is a faith statement because just like with Jesus, we can do nothing without God leading us, directing us, empowering us, and sustaining us. 
We looked at a verse last week. I want to pull it up really quickly. It's out of Galatians 3, where Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And we talked about last week how it's, it's actual. This isn't like a poetic word like, oh, I bet it's bad, but it's not that bad. No, it really is this bad. It's actually witchcraft to try to do spiritual things through the flesh. It's witchcraft. It's rebellion against God. It doesn't change the fact that we outpower Satan, right? Satan is fully aware. It's just that we can't operate from the flesh or that's witchcraft. That's actually partnering with Satan when we try to operate out of the flesh. So we stay in the spirit, right? Walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We walk by the spirit, we stand firm and we're promised that the enemy will flee from us. That's a good deal. There are several things that Jesus repeatedly said to do over and over throughout the Gospels. He said, heal the sick. He said, raise the dead. He said, cleanse the lepers. And he said, cast out demons. Now, I know that we talk a lot about those in our circles. We, we have a school that, uh, at Kingdom Living where we talk about that all the time. But how come if Jesus repeatedly says, do these things, do these things, do these things, do these things, how come there aren't more schools that focus on casting out and healing and cleansing and delivering? I think this is actually a big deal. One of the things that the Lord has been telling us, and we've shared this with you guys over the past month or so, he's actually asking us to um, give you all more things to lay hold of, to take ownership of, so that this isn't a Sunday-only family. One of those things that's coming down the pipelines a little later this year is we're going to have some deliverance training. If Jesus repeatedly said, cast out demons, guess what we have to be adept at? Casting out demons. This isn't optional. I don't understand how we can think, yeah, but I'd rather just talk about the Bible. Show me your actions and I will show you your beliefs. Isn't that right, James? So let's talk about our rightful place tonight. Um, I want to read you Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. It says, yet you have made him, and he's talking about mankind, you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put things under his feet. I'm going to reread that, and I want to point out a few words because I know people who love the Lord. They, they are sincere, believing Christians, um, and yet they seem to reject some of these things that God says about them. You were made a little bit lower than God. That's pretty high. He has crowned you with glory and majesty. And we say, whoa, 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 only Jesus is crowned with glory. Well, actually, you're crowned with glory, and you're crowned with majesty, and if we want to give him glory, we have to give him something that we possess. You are crowned with glory and majesty. Give him glory. Give him majesty. He's crowned you with it. God made us to rule over the works of his hands, and he has put all things under our feet. You say, where does, where does David get that? Well, David gets that from Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve had been given all authority to the planet. 
They had been given an assignment and given all the help that they needed to complete this assignment. And Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has five things that he says, here's what you're to do. You're equipped for it. You're ready for this. This is your mission. Fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, rule. It sounds like man was created a little below God. Unfortunately, you know the story. Adam and Eve fell, and they handed the keys of authority to Satan when they sinned. And all that was under Adam and Eve's authority when they sinned was handed over to their new uh, slave master, and their disobedience brought a curse upon God's creation, Genesis chapter 3. It cursed God's creation when they sinned, and it gave Satan all that authority and all that power. The fall of mankind actually shifted man's place in the universe. We've talked about this many months in a row where God has an order, a divine set of rules, a divine way of doing things that work. In other words, God's design works. It succeeds. He sets it up for our success. He doesn't need success. He is success. But he sets these things in place where when they happen this way, it will bring the kingdom. One of the things that God designed was the order of authority in the universe. We're going to talk about this for a little bit. When God originally created the universe, we were put above the angels. We were above the angels, right? We were a little lower than God, Psalm 8 says. And did you know that later in the New Testament, it says that we are going to judge the angels. That's wild to me. I can't wait for that. I, I want to have like a little scoring rubric and be like, Gabriel, talk to Mary, check. You know, made Zacharias mute for nine months. Eh, B minus for that. I don't know. Like, I don't know the rubric, but I can't wait to see how do we judge angels. But when he created man, we were above angels, a little lower than God. But then when we sinned, what happened is our status shifted down on the totem pole. And when the fall happened, we gave our keys to the kingdom, to the evil one, and it actually moved Satan up into second place. A few thousand years later, Jesus went behind enemy lines. Oh, take that down. A few thousand years later, Jesus went behind enemy lines, and he defeated the enemy once and for all, and he began to reestablish his kingdom when he was nailed on the cross. And when he was nailed to the cross, we went back to plan A, ruling, reigning, submitting the earth, having dominion over it, being ambassadors of the king and his kingdom, called to reign and rule forever. This is what he paid for. In other words, Jesus got the keys back and the cross moved mankind back into second place. It displaced Satan. Put that chart up on the board. I wanna go through this with you. Before the creation of the world, there was God, and he had his archangels, and then he had his angels. There's some sort of delineation where archangels have a higher level of authority scripturally. When God made the heavens and the earth, and he made mankind, what he did is he put 
mankind just a little below God, right? We've already looked at that scripturally. And being just below God, humans, below us were the archangels, including Satan, who was an archangel, and the rest of the angels. So it's probably not the most accurate way to look at it, but if you think of this as a totem pole, we were number two on the list. But when mankind sinned and we had the fall, it actually displaced us and made Satan the ruler of this world. He actually took the keys to the kingdom. But then, a few thousand years later, hanging on a cross, Jesus reversed the curse, and he moved humans back into second place. Keep that up there for a while. When the crucifixion happened, and Jesus proclaimed that it's finished, after that, Jesus then gave us the Holy Spirit. And when he gave us the Holy Spirit, he made it possible to be guided and empowered to walk through this life, reigning, ruling, having dominion, subduing the earth, bringing under his dominion through the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And now we can actually follow Jesus' example because the same spirit living in him lives in us. The same spirit who empowered him now empowers you. He has not only empowered us, but on the cross, he, he restored our relationship with the Father. He brought us back into intimacy, and he brought us into obedience. And now we have been recruited into this kingdom, and we don't fight our enemy, we fight his enemy, and his enemy has become our enemy. Does this make sense? This isn't about us, it's about him, and we come under his authority, and we defeat his enemy, who is now my enemy. Yes? Okay. Every time that we come and we assert our authority, it's like we are cutting into the domain of this imposter king, Satan, who took authority from our ancestor, from Adam. Our right standing with God is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter three. Romans quotes it, I don't have a slide, but Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's literally what God prophesied in Genesis chapter three. Redemption through the blood, the redemption on the cross restored our relationship to God and it brought us into victory over Satan. It's a two-way street and both ways are great. So, let me ask you this again, but don't answer it because you're gonna say the wrong answer. Question, how much authority does Satan have? He has as much as we give him. And that's it and that's all. Satan is always hungry for power and authority. Always. We've talked about this over the years. The religious spirit always wants authority. It wants to be right at any cost because Satan's behind it. He wants authority. The political spirit wants power at any cost. Power and authority. This is what Satan is after. And if Satan is to exercise any of the authority that he desires, he actually has to rely on human cooperation because he has no power and no authority. 
I know I'm, I'm overstating that, but we have to understand he is weak, he is frail, he is trembling because we have been given the keys to the kingdom. When, sorry, let me put it this way. He is dependent, Satan is dependent on human participation. So for example, in the time of Jesus' birth, it was Herod, King Herod's agreement with Satan that enabled Satan to carry out his plan to kill all the, the newborn children in Israel. Satan would have done that on his own, but he needed human cooperation to make that happen. Do you see how this works? The same thing happened with Moses, with Pharaoh. Pharaoh actually cooperated with Satan to bring Satan's plan into existence. Satan would probably love to be able to kill all the, the newborn children in all of Egypt on his own, but he needed a human being to cooperate with him, and he got Pharaoh to do it. The, the amount of authority that Satan can exercise in any given situation is directly correlated to human cooperation that he receives. I want to talk about two different words. The words are ability and authority. Ability and authority. These are very different words. Did you know that Satan has the ability to kill and steal and destroy? But having the ability to do this is apparently very different from having the authority to do this. In other words, Satan has the ability to start a fight. He just does not have the authority to win a fight. A criminal has the ability to steal, but he does not have the authority to commit that act without consequences. I have the ability to sin, but I don't have the authority to do whatever I want without consequence. Does this make sense? Apparently, Satan has the ability to kill and steal and destroy. And the minute that he can get some human cooperation, he does. He, he jumps on it. He hates the fact that he does not have the authority to do what he wants. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Do you understand that the enemy is roaming around looking to devour people, but he does not have the power or the authority to do so? All we have to do is stand firm in our faith, and he cannot have us. He will actually flee from us when we stand firm because we have all the power and all the authority given to us. Let's go to Psalm 23, a very well-known passage. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because, leave that there, because I want to reference this. Because the devil does not have power or authority, we can sit in his view, in his eyesight. We can sit in his presence at a table prepared for us without fearing that he can do anything to us. It's actually mocking him because we're saying like, 
you wish you could get me. You're roaming around looking for those who you can devour, but you cannot touch me. I'm sitting at the Father's table. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of our enemies. The enemy cannot harm us at the table. He wants to, but he cannot. It's a place of safety. Now here's a question. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. What do you think we're doing at that table? Playing cards? Eating. We're eating. Submitting to God puts us in a place of safety and provision. The enemy's staring at us, watching us eat, and he knows that we're protected. He's staring at us, watching us eat, being provided for, and he can't rob us. He can't touch it. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemy. The the, the activity of Satan in the world uh, many times can seem so obvious that we assume that he has more power and authority than he actually does. But listen to me, belief is empowering. Belief is empowering. Focus, a hyper-focus is empowering. Uh, Unbelieving believers are a serious threat to the kingdom of God advancing. Did you hear what I said? Unbelieving believers are a serious threat to the kingdom of God advancing. Satan has no power and no authority to overcome believing believers. But he will find unbelieving believers who will focus on Satan's acts. He will focus on Satan's deeds. He will focus on what the enemy is doing. He will find the shadow in every corner. But if we begin to focus on him, we're going to start giving him affection and attention that he doesn't deserve. I'm not saying be unaware of his schemes, but let me tell you about the enemy's schemes. Jesus says he only comes to kill and steal and destroy. There you go. There's his schemes. If you see killing, guess who's behind it? If you see stealing, guess who's behind it? If you see destruction, guess who's behind it? There's his schemes. We're not unaware of those things. The other thing that we have to remember, can you go back to that chart with all the different rankings of authority? Satan is not the opposite of God. You've seen this Satan and Jesus arm wrestling picture. That is the dumbest, most heretical picture ever invented. There is no arm wrestling match. Jesus ripped his arms off before the foundations of the world. There was never a wrestling match. Jesus didn't work up a sweat and, oh, thank God I've been going to the gym. I finally defeated the devil this week. No, Satan is not the opposite of Jesus. He's the opposite of Michael and Gabriel. He's a fallen archangel. Do you understand? In the same way that Michael or Gabriel could never compare to the glory or splendor or majesty of the king, the same way that Satan in his opposite, in his inverse evil ways, cannot compete with God's glory and goodness and splendor and majesty. Satan doesn't know all things. He's not omniscient. God is. Satan isn't everywhere. He's not omnipresent. God is. Satan isn't all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. God is. There is no arm wrestling match. Take it off your screensavers, all you Pharisees. 
Satan is actually very weak because he has no power. He is very afraid because he has no authority. Why do you think that he only operates in fear and lies and deceit? It's because that's all he has. Those are his only weapons. When I went to grad school, go Tar Heels, I was 22 years old. How many people went through grad school or college? How many of you had so much money you didn't even know what to do with it when you were in college and grad school? No? Okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. I was baroque. Okay, I had nothing. And when I went to grad school, um, I had a small bank account, but it was small. And what my parents did is they gave me a credit card. They gave me their credit card and they put my name on it. And they said, um, every week I can go out to any restaurant that I want and get one meal per week on them. And so they sent me, or they gave me their card, and on the card it had the credit card number, and then it had their names, Don and Brenda Cabra, and then under their name was my name. Their names came first on the credit cards because ultimately they were responsible to paying the bank for whatever transactions happened on that card. And then my name was there, it was under their name. And my name was under their name because it was under their authority that I could now use their card to spend it on whatever I wanted. When my name was added to that card, I gained all the financial authority that their name could cover. My name couldn't cover very much financial. I could eat at McDonald's on my credit, but I could eat at much nicer places on their credit. And in other words, my name had very little authority to make any sort of purchase. Uh, I had very little credit of my own, but my parents gave me their card, which at the time seemed like endless spending limits. Like I can spend how much, like how many commas, you know? But they set a boundary and they said, Sam, you can, have, you can buy one meal per week. I don't care where you go. You can go to McDonald's, you can go to a, they probably wouldn't say a five-star restaurant, like a two-star restaurant. So I remember in grad school, every Friday night, like grad school is hard. It's like 50 hour weeks, you're, you're grinding, it's school and then practicum and you're just, you're done at the end of the week. And every Friday, it was my treat to myself. I had three spots, TGI Fridays, which now sounds like a nightmare, but man, that, that all you can eat salad bar, forget about it. I was just, oh, that was my jam. There was another place called Soup or Sal Super Salad, unlimited soup, unlimited salad. You see like this trend, unlimited, yeah. I would eat till my heart's content. And then the other one, which I just, this was actually my favorite, the grocery store near my apartment in grad school made the best deli sandwiches on the planet. And it was, you know, two slices of bread, but it was like this much stuff in the middle where you could barely get it in your mouth. And I remember every Friday night going to one of those three places and every time I would get one of those special meals with their card, it was special. I, I remember, and part of this was probably because I was exhausted and tired, but I would cry eating those meals because I was so grateful for this mega sandwich that I didn't have to pay for. And it made me miss my parents. It made me love my parents. It made me so thankful for my parents. And I would call them that night or the next day and I would tell them what they bought me for dinner, you know? And I would thank them and, and let them know like, wow, this means so much to me. 
The truth of the matter is that I could have misused their card. The truth of the matter is I could have abused their card, but because of the, relation, the wonderful relationship I had with my parents, I never wanted to abuse that authority that they gave me. I knew that if I decided to misuse this authority that they had given me, that they would find out, right? They get credit card bills. It's not like I could hide this for more than a month. They're gonna get this statement in the mail that someone in North Carolina has spent $5,000 on four meals, you know? I knew that if I abused it, it would be revoked. But my motivation for handling the card well had nothing to do with fear of judgment for misusing it. My motivation to stay within the boundaries only had to do with my love for my parents. I love them. Why on earth would I abuse this thing that they have given to me that cost them something? Deep down I knew that if I abused it, that privilege would be revoked. But they still decided to take the risk of giving me freedom with their authority so that I would grow in my authority. My credit actually grew because my name was on their credit card. Did you know that? The flip side of that is I could have, and I remember I had this thought many times. Like we, were, we weren't wealthy growing up. We were about as middle class as middle class can be. We had enough and that was great. Um, and so I knew my parents didn't have a ton of money. And I remember many weeks thinking, you know, if I don't buy this $8 sandwich, that would actually save them a lot of money over the course of the year. Like, you know, 52 $8 sandwiches really adds up, you know? And I don't want to put that burden on them. I can eat, you know, a Hot Pocket for dinner or whatever. In other words, I could have refused my parents' credit card. I could have said, I don't want to use this card. I don't feel right using their authority to buy my dinner. It's not their hunger. It's my hunger. I should be responsible for this. And if I chose not to use their credit card, it didn't mean that I had lost the authority to use it. It just meant I didn't use the authority given to me. Do you see where I'm going with this? I think that a lot of times this is what we do as Christians, as believers, is the Lord has like said, like, here's my, here's my authority. Here's all of it. Here's a credit card literally with no spending limits. It has all power, all authority. I'm giving it all to you. Here's the keys of the kingdom. You keep them in your pocket and you pull them out when you need them. Why wouldn't you use this, Sam? Do you know why deliverance works? I'm talking about deliverance meaning casting out demons. Why does deliverance work? It's not because demons hate certain words or phrases that if we put the right words in order, it's like this magic domino effect that casts them out. They, don't, they aren't afraid of words or phrases. They're afraid of authority. And they're afraid of power. Isn't that interesting? Remind me who has all authority and all power. That's right. The enemy's really afraid of us. Because he knows that this is an authority issue. He knows that this is an identity issue. Deliverance works because of who we are, not what we say, not what we do. I love being part of deliverance. It's like when we talk about, you know, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know of anything that is a truer picture of heaven coming to earth than deliverance. Like it's literally the displacing of darkness and replacing of light. When you see the demonic scattered, you know that there is someone who has a greater power and authority in your midst. There was a season of my life quite a few years ago when I wanted to grow in deliverance. And I started asking the Lord, hey, I want to grow in deliverance. Well, most of the time, at least for myself, what I found is when I pray prayers like that, what I really want is not to be involved with deliverance. I just want him to impart and implant the ability to deliver the worst of demons, but I really don't feel like getting involved with all that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, Lord, I want to heal the sick. And he's like, okay, here's 200 sick people to start praying for. No, 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 Lord, maybe you're mishearing me. Like, I just want to like look at them and then be healed. He's like, yep, there's your 200 people. Start, start, go ahead. So when I said, Lord, I want to start operating in greater levels when it comes to deliverance, guess what he did? He answered it. He did not answer it how I thought, but he answered it. What the Lord did for me in this season is he started giving me deliverance dreams. I learned deliverance in my sleep. It came in a season from asking him to teach me how to deliver people who are oppressed and possessed by demons, and he did it in my sleep. The more, sorry, I started having more and more dreams where there was deliverance happening and they grew scarier and darker in intensity to the point where I'm, I'm not one who, um, when it comes to fight or flight, I'm usually a fight. Um, if you jump out and scare me, you might get punched in the face. It's not purposeful, it's just a reaction. I'm not a fright kind of guy. But in these dreams, I became a fright guy. And the fight instinct left me. And I would be, be having these dreams where these demonic things would happen and I would get completely paralyzed in fear. How many know what I'm talking about? I would be locked in place. My brain was going 1,000 miles a minute and my body, even in my dream, was just paralyzed. Um, it actually started happening even outside of my dreams where I would wake up from one of these dreams, I would be completely paralyzed. I would either see dark things in the room or there was one very short season where doors would slam shut. You know, this was like, whoa, this is, something's happening here. Am I sure I want this? <laughs> I did ask for this, right? And in my dreams, I started having these people who were either possessed or oppressed. I'm not really sure which they were. And they would come to me and they would come like wolves in sheep's clothing where I knew like, hey, something's not quite right about this person. And, I, you know, you would think from dream to dream, you would remember like, well, last dream, it was a demon possessed guy. It's like you forget that. And you're like, huh, I wonder what's up with this guy. And then a demon pops out and you're completely caught off guard like you sh didn't see this coming. Well, all these demonic people would come into my dreams and what they would do is they would actually start to speak truths, things that I knew were true, but didn't quite feel right to me. And I began waking up and thinking like, how did I not know that that was a demon possessed person? Like they, they said some really true sounding things and yet my heart still knew that something wasn't right. And then they kind of 
popped out and revealed themselves. Well, when I was a kid, my pastor uh, used to say, never believe the devil even when he tells the truth. Never believe the devil even when he tells the truth. Did you know that Satan loves to quote scripture? Did you know that that the Satan can say something that is true, but just because he's the father of the lies, the minute that he puts it on his mouth, it's a lie. He knows more than you. Satan is smarter than you, but he's actually foolish. He's not wise. He's smart. He's defiled because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. So I began to ask God in these dreams, what is happening? What are, why am I locking up with fear? I know that these these critters do not have power and authority over me. And yet, I, like, I get the goosebumps, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, I cannot move. Well, one night, uh, this was after months of really, really intense dreams. Um, I knew God was allowing this to happen. Uh, let me rephrase that. I knew that God was answering my prayer. And so I didn't start, start praying for it to stop. I was like, no, he's, you're teaching me something and I'm gonna stick with it till I learn this. So after months of these really intense dreams, I had this one dream one night of a former student that I had. And this was a really sweet kid. He wasn't like this in real life. And I think the Lord chose that particular person to put it in my dream because I knew that, that he was a very innocent, safe child. But in my dream, this former student of mine was actually demon-possessed. And I was sitting in this, I don't know, classroom somewhere, and I see this kid come in, and instantly the chills come over me. Instantly, I perceive the presence of evil in the room. The Lord gave me discernment through this season where I, I literally walked away, like knowing how to discern uh, evil spirits in the room. And, and in this dream, I see this kid come in the room, and instantly all the senses perk up. And I'm like, there's something on this kid. This is not right. And he starts manifesting. He gets really gnarly. He's in my face. I freeze up. I want to do something. I want to scream. I want to kick. I want to punch. And I can't. And in my paralysis, I remember my jaw was locked shut. I couldn't move anything, but my lips were open. And I just said, Jesus. And as I said it, he jumped and grabbed me. And I fell, I actually grabbed him and we fell backwards. And as we were falling, I'll never forget this. Everything shifted, fear left, and I started laughing. And I hugged him and we fell to the floor. And I'm laughing, laughing, laughing. And when we hit the floor, he was delivered. Now again, this is all in a dream. But I, when I woke up, as soon as I hit the floor, we woke up and the Lord said, you delivered him. And I said, that's the most bizarre thing I've ever encountered. Do it again, God. Like, I, I, I don't know what I'm learning, but I'm, I feel like I'm learning something. The next dream I had, same thing. I was in a house. There's a stairway, this demon-possessed person who, who in their body was very innocent and harmless. But I knew that there was something very dark and they're manifesting and terrible things coming out of the mouth. And as they come up the stairway towards me, fear paralysis sets in. And I began to learn that fear is a liar. Like I might feel fear in my flesh, but my spirit is not afraid of this thing. And even though my flesh locked up and I couldn't move my lips, what I started to do is I started to say the name of Jesus. And in this one particular dream, I started to worship. And you ever try to sing without moving your lips? That's what I was doing in the dream. And as I sang with my lips like this, 
uh, the demon started screaming. He started saying, no, stop it. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. That's bad. That's bad. And my lips became looser and looser, and my mouth began to move and move till I was shouting. And I wasn't shouting to cast out. I wasn't even paying attention to the demon. I was worshiping the Lord, and the demon came out of that person. I woke up, and the Lord said, you delivered him. I said, yeah, but I didn't, you know, lay hands on and say, demon, what's your name? Come out. He said, you, you worshiped me. You worshiped me. And I moved from this season of sleep paralysis and, and terrible paralyzing fear to waking up and getting out of my bed when I knew there was something dark in the room. And I wasn't chasing it to show it who was boss, but I would get up and I would walk around worshiping. And the enemy would scream. Sometimes I heard him scream. I heard growls. I heard him making moaning sounds. But he could not handle worship. And listen, he can handle you singing Christian songs, but he can't handle worship. Don't sing songs. Worship is a heart issue. Songs is just your flesh. And in that season, Jesus trained me in deliverance in my sleep. Jesus trained me that worship was actually warfare. And you don't have to go to war. You just have to worship. And he makes it warfare. You don't need to kick. You don't need to fight. You don't need to scream. And I learned to worship him seated at the table in the presence of my enemy. And the enemy fled every time. The terrifier became terrified. The enemy began to become horrified of me. And I, I started having more and more and more of these dreams. And, and every time that I would feel even the slightest presence of something demonic, I would just launch into worship. I learned how to turn my affections instantly away from this, away from the noise, and just straight up to him. And it began to cast out demons. Now people say, that's just in your dreams. That's not real. Did you know that your spirit never sleeps? You're always awake. Your spirit has a soul and your soul has a body. Spirit man never sleeps. First of all, Psalm 8.2 says that through praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Your praise silences the foe and the avenger. Do you remember how I just said in those dreams, he froze my face where I couldn't speak? Because he knows that my praise will actually crush him. Yeah, but Sam... You can't learn deliverance training in your sleep. What if that's bad theology involved? Okay, Mr. Fear of Dreams guy. Let's go to Psalm 16 and see what Psalm 16 says. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Do you get it? That he's visiting us and ministering to at night. And the reason why is because I've continually set the Lord before me. Even at night. Even when my body is completely unaware, my spirit is aware because I've continually set him before me. Not the enemy, not what the enemy's doing on the planet, not all the bad stuff, not the despair, but I've set him continually before me, that he'll minister to my heart even in the night. I want my spirit so enraptured with him that even in the night, I'm continually putting him before me. I don't need to have my consciousness engaged. 
And you say, okay, that's just one off in the Bible. Maybe it means something different. Well, turn the page. One chapter later in Psalm 17, it says this. You have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I, I have purposed in my mouth that I will not transgress. At night, when we are not consciously engaged, when we're not awake and when we're not aware of our surroundings, only when our spirit man is engaged, God still visits us, he still counsels us, he still instructs us, and he still tests us. God will refine you in your sleep. And you know what the result of that season was with these weird deliverance dreams? Is that I started being able to see actual deliverance happen when I was awake. And I've told a lot of you guys, especially if you're in kingdom living, I've told you these stories, like radical stories, eyeballs appearing in people who like didn't have pupils and retinas, um, demons being cast out, people who lived a lifestyle of homosexuality, having a demon cast out in that very hour, their whole life changed and they never had a homosexual desire the rest of their life. Because I had dreams, because God instructed me in the night. He's really good at his job. He's really good at his job. All we need to do is set our gaze upon him and continually put him in front of our face. That's it. I was trained in deliverance in my sleep. I had watched it growing up. That wasn't super uncommon. I'd seen that kind of thing growing up. I'd seen some wild stuff. But I'd never went through a deliverance class. I'd never read a deliverance book. I never studied about it. And listen, there's merit to that. We're, we're actually studying deliverance stuff, getting ready for this uh, deliverance training. We don't want to have just like, well, here's all the dreams I've had. That's valuable. But there's also value in studying. All I'm trying to say to you, though, is that I simply set him before me and he taught me in my sleep. That's who he is. That's what he's like. You don't have to work for the promises. You get to rest in the promises. And I don't know of any way that's more restful to accomplish the promises than sleeping. Like, Lord, teach me all the promises in my sleep. I, am, I receive it. And once the demons understand whose authority you're under and whose authority you're op operating in, they usually will leave right away because they don't want to mess with you because they have no power and no authority. It's our partnership that gives Satan a power. It's our partnership that gives Satan authority. It's not because he's strong and he arm wrestled Jesus and today he won two out of three. No, he's never won. He can't even stand in the presence of Jesus. God's people, you, have more power at your disposal than you think you do. And believers need to start operating based on who they really are, not who they think they are. Not who they feel like, but who you actually are. What if all believers refuse to give fear access to our lives? All at the same time. Imagine what would happen. What if the bride collectively disempowered fear? Stopped partnering with fear? What if the bride collectively pulled a chair up to the table in the presence of our enemies? and said, hey, enemy, watch me eat. Watch me be provided for and protected, and you're unable to do a thing about it. We've been spending the last few weeks um, dedicating certain things in our lives. This is a year of dedication, I feel like, with Reunion. 
and we've dedicated this house, this, this church, we've dedicated our homes, our families, our marriages. Um, tonight, we're actually going to dedicate our nights to him. And, and you say, like, what? Our night times? What do you mean? Listen, if he is saying, like, hey, here's an open promise. I'll teach you. I'll comfort you. I'll counsel you. I'll instruct you. I'll refine you in your sleep. Sign me up. Sign me up. That's the best deal I can think of right now. I'm really tired right now. And to th the thought of going home and just be able to drift off and waking up more equipped than when I went to bed, yes. Do it again, God. Do it again. We're going to commit our night times to him. We're going to commit our rest to him. And I don't even mean just our sleep, but like our, our going down for the evening. You know, I, I'm not like Tannis. Tannis, like if she... She can be going, let me rephrase this. She only goes 100 miles per hour. And it's like she will go to her bed, and the second that her head touches the pillow, she's done. She's gone. That's not me. My head touches the pillow for at least 45 minutes before I fall asleep, you know? It's not this instantaneous thing. So for me, going to bed is a process. Like, I've told Tannis, I've told my friends, I do not do any work after 7 p.m. because it keeps me up. My brain is going too hard. It's like a freight train. I can't stop it. It takes hours to slow that thing down. Um, I wish I had that ability to just call it a night. But my point is this. I'm going to commit that whole downtime to him. The whole process, he gets it. We've been praying this over and over and over, and I'm going to tell you, this has been so costly for me, so costly for me, to pray, God, take whatever you want, shake whatever you want, purify whatever you want. It's really costly, and yet I know that he's answering a prayer that I need him to answer. And he's taking things. And he's shaking things and he's purifying things. But the result is that I will gladly let him take what he needs to take so that I can have better fruit later. I will gladly let him shake whatever he needs to shake so that my life moves at a better trajectory for where he wants me. I will gladly let him refine me in the, in the fire, knowing that his purification is the only thing that will get me to where he's asking me to go. So will you guys stand up with me as we dedicate our nights to him? And like what we've been saying over the past few weeks, I'm not praying for you. I'm praying with you. You're dedicating these things with me to him. Uh, all I'm going to do for this, because I want this to be based on scripture. If you want your prayers answered, pray scripture. Because it's truth. It's promises. He will do what he said he's done. He is faithful to his own word. So all I'm going to do is read a, a little bit of an extended portion from Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. Those two passages I just read that are about our rest, about our sleep. This is not us receiving from the Lord. This is us giving him something, dedicating something to him. Our rest, our sleep, our winding down from the night. This is us dedicating our dreams to him. This is us saying, yes, Lord, invade my sleep. This is your time, not mine. Let me read these over you. This is us dedicating as a house to the Lord. 
Out of Psalm 16, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So God, come, take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want in our night seasons. Now I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 17, the very next chapter, same thing. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. I have called upon you. I've called upon you in the night. For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who will rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I'm awake. God, in our going down and in our waking up, it's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Even something that I, I feel like there are people who are like, what is, I don't understand the importance. If you don't, if your mind doesn't get it, let your heart receive this then. This is really important. This is really important. That eight hours out of every day, a third of every single day, that we actually have an opportunity to spend uninterrupted with him. Lord, I receive your counsel. I receive your might. I receive your strength in the nighttime. Search me, O Lord, and find nothing. No transgressions in my ways. You have called me righteous. You have called me holy. You have called me pure. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords in my night times, God. You've promised sweet rest to those who love you. That's what the Bible says. And so we lay that. If there are people who have sleep issues, raise your hand if that's you, if you have sleep issues. Raise them high. Keep going. Yep, there's hands all over the place. This is not allowed... This is not allowed. And we're just proclaiming that the enemy cannot rob you of sleep any longer. We break the things that he is trying to take. All he has is fear. All he has is lies. All he has is deceit. The nighttime does not actually belong to him. He wants you to think so. But the nighttime belongs to the Lord. And so we speak sweet rest over his beloved ones. We speak sweet sleep. The promise of sweet sleep over you. That tonight would be a deep slumber. Think of how many amazing things scripturally happen in deep slumbers. Jacob's ladder. Joseph being warned by angels. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Over and over and over, it happens in sleep. Let it be so with us, God. Shift the world. Change the world. Let revival spring forth through dreams. Teach us what we need to be taught in that rest.
I feel like there's some of you in this house who are actually going to see risen Jesus in your sleep. And when you see risen Jesus, everything changes. Addictions are broken. Lies are rebuked. Powers and principalities are shifted. When you look into those eyes of fire, when you see the hair of wool, when you hear the voice like waters, he actually will speak to you in your sleep. Let it be so, God. So, Father, I bless what you're doing in this house. I bless what you're doing in this family. Increase it, God. Increase it. Increase it. We glorify your name, Jesus, that these are even possibilities, that we get to take you up on these promises. Ah, you're awesome, God. You're mighty. You're wonderful. You're majesty. We bless your name, Jesus. We glorify you. No one else is worthy of honor. No one else is worthy of praise. No one else is high and lifted up. Be high and lifted up in our sleep. Be high and lifted up in our homes. Be high and lifted up in our church. Be high and lifted up in our coming and in our going. You're worthy of it. You're worthy of it. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.